Now, as we come to the book of Deuteronomy, I should remind you, this is the last book of the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible were written by Moses and called a Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, Deuteronomy means two, or it means the second law. But this is not to infer that there is merely a repetition of the law as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It's more than a recapitulation. It is another illustration of this law of recurrence that we've seen. The Spirit of God has a way of saying something, probably an outline, and then coming back and putting an emphasis upon a particular portion of it that needs to be emphasized or that God wants us to have our particular attention called to it. Now, we find here that in the book of Deuteronomy, it's the book of experience and obedience. And something new has been added. It's the law interpreted in the light of 38 years' experience in the wilderness. Now, God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. And the question is, how did they do with it? Well, they've had now 38 years' experience. And new problems had arisen which were not covered by the law specifically. We saw that back in the book of Numbers when the daughters of Zelophehad came to Moses and said, Look, our father had no sons. In fact, all of his sons are daughters. And the law says that a son shall inherit. Well, what about us? And so there had to be an interpretation, and the interpretation that the woman inherited just like the man. Now, a new generation, you see, has arisen, and they were unfamiliar with the experiences at Mount Sinai. And they needed to have the law brought to their attention. They needed to have the law interpreted for them in the light of 38 years. And we're going to see in this book especially, God tells his people that they are to teach the law constantly to their children. I wonder today if that isn't the great neglect in the home. We're today talking about the failure of the schools and the failure of the church. And I want to say to you that I agree that they both miserably failed in teaching boys and girls. I think today that the idea is if we just change our methods and get a hold of a new gimmick, why, we'll have it made. And we don't have it made, as you well know. They've tried everything, and nothing works. What is the problem? It's back there in the home that these things should have been taught in the home. Now, I had the, I started to say privilege, but I'm not sure it was, and yet I believe it was, of going through the Depression. And those were rough days, as some of you can remember it. And I never shall forget when my daughter was growing up, she had reached, uh, I think, teenage. She was a teenager. And she said, Dad, you're always talking about the Depression. What was the Depression? And all of a sudden it occurred to me that I had failed probably to teach her about a very important segment of our history 
and that it had a great deal to do with many of us older folk, and it caused them maybe not to understand our generation as they should. We wonder why they spend money so freely, and we today try to save it. And the reason is they know nothing about the period that we went through that was such a trying period, as many of you will recall. You see, these are things that should be taught. Now a new generation has come up, and Moses is going to teach them the law, but now in the light of 38 years' experience. So you don't have just a boresome repetition of the law in Deuteronomy. Now, we're going to move a great deal faster in Deuteronomy than we moved in the Gospel of John. But I would have you know that this is a very important section that we are in, and it's very important indeed. We need to recognize that. Now, we have here four Hebrew titles of Deuteronomy. It's called, for instance, the Debarim. That is, the words are, these be the words. And we'll note how this book is divided in just a moment. Well, I think probably I should mention it here. In the first four chapters, we'll have the reviewing of the journeys. Moses will go over their history for this new generation. And then you have the restating of the law and a very unusual emphasis, as we're going to see. And then, having looked back in the past, he looks into the future. And you have one of the greatest prophetic sections in the Scripture, beginning with the 27th chapter of Deuteronomy through the 30th chapter, and that's regarding the future in the land. And then we have in 31 through 34, Requiem to Moses. Here's the outline, reviewing the journeys, first four chapters, restating the law, 5 through 26, and then regarding the future in the land, 27 through 30, and then 31 through 34, Requiem to Moses. I hope you have our notes and outlines. It'll make this very meaningful to you. Now, that's one name for the book of Deuteronomy, Debarim, the words, and then... It's been called the kith of the fifth of the law. <laughs> That's scotch, as you can understand. And then the third is the book of reproofs. And then fourth, the iteration of the law. Now, what is the great theme of the book of Deuteronomy? May I say to you, this I'm sure is going to surprise some of you, but we have here the great theme is love and obey. And that I know is going to be startling to some folks because they say, you don't mean to tell me that there's love back this far. Yes, there is. This book teaches man to love and to obey God. The word love occurs 22 times, and the word obey occurs 10 times. You see, the motive for obedience is love. And the Lord Jesus, he wasn't attempting to give you something brand new, but he's giving you something very important and something that was an eternal truth. He said, you remember, if ye love me, keep my commandments. The true motive for obedience, you see, is in this book of Deuteronomy. We're going to see it when we get to it. God's love for man 
is the motive for his government and the giving of laws. And man's love of God is the motive for his obedience. Now, this is not the gospel, but the great principle of it is here. And I think we'll get probably a proper perspective of the law here. And let's understand one thing. The law is good. Then somebody says, then you are the one who emphasizes so much on the radio that we're saved by grace and we can't be saved by law. Yes, my friend, I emphasize it and I overemphasize it, and then I overemphasize it again because God can't save you by law. Well, you're saying now the law is good. Sure, the law is good. You know where the trouble is? The trouble is with you and with me. I had another conversation with my daughter, and she went on to say, and this is what she got in college, she says, now, Dad, you know, democracy is probably the best form of government that there is. But today, it's in trouble. And then she went on to mention certain things that these kids are taught today in college, you know. And so I said, I agree with that to a certain extent. I says, actually, democracy is a good form of government. And I said, a monarchy is a good form of government. And actually, a dictatorship is a good form of government. She looked at me in amazement. She says, why, I never thought you'd say that. I said, the trouble is with man. The trouble is in the human heart today. And it's not the form of government that is wrong today. The trouble in Washington is not that we need more legislation. We need less legislators. And after all, laws are good. God gave them because he loved man. And laws actually are not made by dumbbells in Washington. Laws are eternal, and they come from God. But you see, the blessing comes in keeping those laws. This is a marvelous book we're coming to, by the way. Now, we have here a new generation has arrived on the east bank of the Jordan River, and it's one month before they're going to enter the promised land. And those of the generation which had left Egypt, they were dead and their bones were bleaching beneath the desert skies because of their unbelief and disobedience. They had broken God's law. Those were sins of commission. They had failed to believe God. Those were sins of omission. You see, unbelief is sin. And the law was weak through the flesh. It was the flesh that was wrong. They were wrong, as we are today. And that's the reason God has to have an altogether different basis on which he saves us. But let's understand laws are good, friends. This idea that you get rid of laws, that's entirely wrong. Now, Moses gives to this new generation his final instructions from the Lord before he relinquishes his leadership of the nation through death. He reviews the desert experiences. He reemphasizes certain features of the law. He reveals their future course in the light of the Palestinian covenant that God had made with them relative to that land. We're going to see in this book, friends, that the Mosaic law was not only given to a people, it was given to a land also. And then he teaches them a new song. And he blesses the twelve tribes 
and then he prepares to die. A requiem to Moses concludes the book. Now, this new generation was unfamiliar with the experiences of Mount Sinai, and they needed to have the law called to their attention and interpreted in the light of their experience and their future dwelling in the promised land. Therefore, this book of Deuteronomy has been the very center of attack by the critic. I wonder if you've noticed that. The authorship of this book was first challenged. The original criticism was that Moses could not have written it because there was no writing in existence in Moses' day. Now, that has subsequently been soundly refuted. The critics stated that the purpose of the book was to glorify the priesthood at Jerusalem, but neither the priesthood nor Jerusalem is even mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. The very interesting thing, this is known as the graf Welthausen hypothesis that came out of Germany years ago and is still being peddled in many of our seminaries as something new today. I don't know why, but they do it. Now, the probable reason, I think, for the satanic attack that's been leveled upon the book of Deuteronomy is that the Lord Jesus Christ quoted exclusively from this book in beating back Satan's temptation. Little wonder that Satan hates the book. You remember in the first temptation why we find him quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3. And when we get to these passages, I will call attention to them, and I'll not turn to them now. But did you know for each one of the three temptations he quoted Deuteronomy? And no wonder the devil hates the book. Now, Deuteronomy exalts the Word of God. That is important to see. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 7, "...thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up." The importance of the Word of God. Friends, it's not the Bible you carry under your arm that is important. It is the Bible that you open before your eyes and study and read it. And the Old Testament prophets quoted from Deuteronomy frequently, and there are 80 references to it in the New Testament, so it must be important. Some very striking features about the book of Deuteronomy, and I'll call attention to them when we get to them. Now, I want to get to our text, and as we do, friends, we're coming to this section where he's reviewing the journeys. That is the important thing to note here, and in the first four chapters, he's reviewing the journeys. Now, we'll hit high points in this section. Will you notice? Moses will be explaining and expounding the law as he goes along also, and especially when we get to chapter 5. Now, let me read. I'm beginning Deuteronomy 1.1. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel and Laban, and Hazeroth and Dizahab. Now, these are places that are across the Jordan River, that place where Moses apparently looked over the land. I stood there on the mountain myself. I have pictures I made there. 
you actually can see the city of Jerusalem from there, and you can see what to me was not a promised land at all, but a total waste. And it reveals what has happened actually to that land down through the centuries. When Moses looked at it, I think he was seeing a green and good land. Today, it is a desert. You think you're looking at a part of California and even Arizona. And I trust my friends over there will forgive me for saying that. But California looks pretty bad on the east side. We look good on the west side along the coast, but we sure don't look good along the eastern border. Now, will you notice, verse 2, "...there are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh by Nea." Eleven days' journey. It took them, will you hear me now very carefully, it actually took them 38 years to cover a territory that should have taken them eleven days to cover. Why? Because of unbelief. And their marching was turned to wandering, and they became just strangers and pilgrims, actually, in that desert. This is the awful thing. And why was it? Well, they were slow to learn. We also are slow to learn, friends. I think that is something that characterizes us today, that we are not very quick at learning. We have low spiritual IQs, and actually, you have to burn the school down to get some of us out of it. Now, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, but if you follow their route, you'll find they went any direction but a straight line. Now, will you notice here, verse 3, it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month that Moses spoke unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. Now, when we get to the 31st chapter, we'll find out Moses wrote all this down. These were orations that he gave, and all of this was given first orally, but then written down. And, of course, that is a very interesting thing that the critic found fault with, but he doesn't anymore, of course, because writing was in existence long before Moses. Now, we have here that he goes over this, reviewing the journeys, and I'm not going over all these details. But in verse 9, you have Moses recounting his first mistake, and it was a mistake in the wilderness. He says, "...and I spake unto you at that time." saying, I'm not able to bear you myself alone. You remember Moses became provoked and, I think, frustrated. And the Lord permitted him to appoint elders, the committee of 70 that became the Sanhedrin that committed Christ to death, you see, later on. He didn't need these. This man didn't need them at all. He was the leader. I think sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a church, friends, is a board that will not follow the pastor or listen to the pastor. And when you have that kind of a conflict, either the board or the pastor ought to get out. And my thought is it's the board in more cases than one. That is, if the man is standing for the Word of God and preaching it, the board is duty-bound to support him. And if they don't like the way he parts his hair, then they should get out. 
But they don't do that today. They split churches, by the way, and they generally try to crucify a preacher. And Moses made a mistake of having this committee, this board appointed, you see. And it was a real mistake because it finally led to the crucifixion of Christ. Now, Moses mentions that here. Not everybody will mention their mistakes. And he says, "...the Lord your God hath multiplied you, and behold, you're this day as the stars of heaven for multitude. The Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times so many more as ye are, and bless you as he hath promised. How can I myself alone bear your cumbrance and your burdens and your strife? Take you wise men." and understanding, and known among your tribes, and I'll make them rulers over you. That sounded good, but it didn't work, by the way, and it caused a great deal of difficulty. That is the first. Do you want to know Moses' estimation of that wilderness they went through? And I'll take his word for it, because he was there. When anyone thinks that that wilderness march was a nice daisy trail that they were following, then they ought to read verse 19. And when we departed from Horeb, we went through all that great and terrible wilderness. Now, that's his estimation of it. The second mistake that Moses records that he made was this, and it actually was not his mistake. This one was their mistake, the people, and it was at Kadesh Barnea. Verse 22, And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go up, and into what cities we shall come. And here we go again. We've got to have a board. We've got to have a committee to go in and search out the land. Now, God had already searched it out. God says it's a land of milk and honey. Sure, there were giants in the land, but God said, I'll take care of them. And so these people now, they want a committee. Moses wanted a board. They want a board. And look what happens in a case like this. And this is the reason they were turned back into that awful wilderness. Now he said there'd be two men that would be able to go through, and that would be Caleb and there would be Joshua. God has made it clear to them that the generation that came up to Kadesh Barnea and turned back in unbelief, that generation, their bones are bleaching out there on the desert right at that moment. And a new generation has come up. Now, God is reviewing the journeys to let them know something of the experience that their fathers had, and they might profit from that experience. And he's also preparing them to enter into the land. Now, all that generation died with the exception of two, two men. One was Caleb, and the other was Joshua. Now, let me read verse 34. And the Lord heard the voice of your words, and was wroth, and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see that good land which I swear to give unto your fathers." Save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him will I give the land that he hath trodden upon, and to his children, because he hath wholly followed the Lord. Now, here is a man that was different from the others. He obeyed God. He was one of the spies. 
And he brought back a good report, an accurate report. Fact of the matter is, he laid hold of the land that he wanted. And you'll find a little later, when we get to the book of Joshua, we're going to get acquainted with Caleb. He's a remarkable man. This man, he walked up and down a certain part of the land. He says, this is what I want. By the way, what do you want of God, friends? Many of you are parents. Many of you are young folks starting out in life. What do you want of God? (laughs) Well, let me say this. If you think you can sit on the sidelines and get it, I want to say you're wrong. Now, I know today that there are great many folks say, well, if you just pray and pray, fine. I won't agree with that. You must pray. You must have fellowship with him. But, my friend, you're going to have to go out there and take it. Did you know that? This man, he said, he's trodden upon it. He says, I'll give him the land that he's trodden upon. And a great many of us today are not being blessed simply because we're spending too much time, not on our knees, too much time sitting down. And that's the wrong place to be if you're going to get the blessing of God. We are to walk. There's a great deal said about the Christian's walk, and there's very little said about the Christian's sitting down. And therefore, we need to lay hold of it. What do you want of God? Caleb, he's coming up later And what a tremendous example he is to us. Now, verse 37, And the Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, Thou also shalt not go in thither. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, he shall go in thither, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Now, This man Joshua is to be the leader to succeed Moses. And why was he chosen? Well, he's a man that's had experience. And he's a man that has wholly followed God. He's one of the two spies. He and Caleb brought back the good report. In other words, they believed God. That was the important thing. That was the essential thing, to believe God and then to step out on faith. You don't believe God, friends, by just sitting down and claiming great blessings. You have to move out for him. Now, will you notice verse 39? He says, moreover, your little ones, and friends, don't miss this. This is so important. Moreover, your little ones, which ye said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, They shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. Now, here is an example of two things. One is the age of responsibility we're going to find is much older than we think it is. That'll come up a little later. But because these folk here that entered the land, some of them were teenagers, by the way, as we shall see. And then there's something else to note here. Children who die in infancy are saved. How do I know? Well, here were these that they hadn't reached the age of accountability, and God didn't hold them responsible when their elders refused to enter the land. He permitted these to enter the land. 
that generation that said, oh, we don't want to enter the land with thinking of our children. And you remember that God made it very clear to them that that wasn't the reason. They were insulting God. They were really saying, God doesn't care for our children. Now, God says, I do care for your children. And those little ones that you thought would be in danger, they're going now. They're going to enter the land. And they're going to come into the land. And here they are. And they're ready to enter the land now. Now, will you notice, and I must drop down to verse 42, for we're hitting the high points now. In verse 42, I read, And the Lord said unto me, that is, unto Moses, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. Now, you will recall that when the children of Israel came to Kadesh, they refused to enter in. Then when they turned back to go into that wilderness, they were met by an enemy. And not only met by an enemy, but that frightful wilderness. And as we saw last time, Moses says that great and terrible wilderness, it frightened them. Now they say, oh, we'll fight now and we'll go in. (laughs) May I say to you, this type of fighting is no good. You know why? Because they're out of the will of God. And the reason now is not because they believe God. It's because they're afraid. It's for fear of the wilderness. In other words, that's the thing that's motivating them, not faith in God. Now, will you notice verse 42? And the Lord said unto me, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest ye be smitten before your enemies. So I spake unto you, and ye would not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. Now, that's not faith, you see. If they'd gone up at the beginning because they believed God, that was one thing. But now they are going up presumptuously, and that's different. And There is, I think, sometimes a very fine distinction between faith and presumption. I know that in the course of my ministry, I've talked to so many people, counsel with them, and some man will say, you know, Brother McGee, I believed God, and I thought he'd bless my business, and I went into this business believing he would bless me, and he didn't. In fact, one man told me I went bankrupt. Well, was it faith in God or presumption? And when we got down to the nitty-gritty, this man went to hear another man speak at a banquet who'd been very successful in business. In fact, his motto was, God is my partner. And he told about how he took God into partnership and how God blessed him. Now, God led that man. I'm confident of that. But he didn't lead this man. This man presumptuously went home and said, Well, if God will make me prosperous, I'm going to take him in as pardon. And God didn't lead him, you see. And he went bankrupt. Believe me, friends, there's a difference between faith and presumptuous. Now, these people presumptuously do that. Now, will you notice, And the Amorites which dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and destroyed you in Seir even to Hormah. And ye returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken to your voice, 
nor give ear unto you. Oh, they came before the Lord, and they just shed crocodile tears. Oh, they wept, and they repented. Yes, but friends, what kind of repentance was this? Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 7:10. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of this world worketh death. You bet they're weeping. Are they weeping because they've disobeyed God? No, they're weeping because the Amorites have chased them. That's the reason they're weeping. You know, the thief was caught, and he began to weep and shed tears and repent. But wait a minute. What kind of tears were then? What kind of repentance? He did not weep because he was a thief. He wept because he'd been caught. There's a lot of difference, friends, in that. And that's the case of these people. Verse 46, So ye abode in Kadesh many days, according unto the days that ye abode there. They apparently spent a great deal of time at Kadesh, and that just comes out here. Now, in chapter 2, he continues this discourse of reviewing the journeys. Now, you will recall when they left there, they came to Mount Seir. And in verse 3, I think the Lord has a sense of humor, and this must be it. He says, "...ye have compassed this mountain long enough, turn you northward." See, they don't know where to go. And all they've done is just go around and around Mount Said. It's sort of like a ring around the roses. They're having a nice children's game. Round and round they go. God says, I'm tired of that. Let's quit this round and round business. Great many Christians are doing that today, are they not? Wow, this is a great chapter. This great chapter here teaches us something that I think that's very important, friends, and that is this. These people were told, And command thou the people, saying, Ye are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take ye good heed unto yourselves, therefore meddle not with them, for I will not give you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. This is a marvelous statement, by the way. Now, you will recall that God had said to Esau, and Esau became Edom. God said that when he went out from the home of Isaac and Rebekah, that God said, I've given you this land. And God gave to Esau a certain land. It's down there where the rock-hewn city of Petra is. God says, that's your possession. God respected that. And he said to his own people, you can't touch that or have that. There's a lesson here for nations, by the way. God has set the bounds of nations. Most wars are fought because that's not respected at all. And then there's another great lesson for us here, and that is God will always make good His promises. Even to a people like this, God made good His promises. Now, in verse 7, God goes over their ground. For the Lord thy God hath blessed thee in all the works of thy hand. He knoweth thy walking through this great wilderness. God says, I knew the troubles and trials that you had. I was with you. 
These forty years the Lord thy God hath been with thee. What a wonderful thing. Thou hast lacked nothing. <laughs> and old David could look back over his life and say, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because he'd never wanted. Thou hast lacked nothing. And that is what? Not the luxuries of life, but God always provides the necessities of life. And that is true for you and for me also. Then we have here the statement made, and I'm dropping down now to verse 24. Rise ye up, take your journey, and pass over the river Arnon. Behold, I have given unto thine hand Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land, begin to possess it and contend with him in battle. Friends, there are a great many things that come to us as the fruits of the Spirit. But there are a great many things that you have to contend for. And here is a great principle of possession for them. And remember, he's just told them, and the Ammonites call them Zamzumims. That's back in verse 20. And who were they? They were the giants. And I don't have time today to talk about it, but have you ever stopped to think where those giants came from? You still see that in the human family. Every now and then they'll sprout up some individual, go seven, eight feet tall. And they had some big boys in that day, by the way. And you find out here that this is a great principle of their possession. Now, they were afraid to enter the land because there were giants in the land. Now, here they are to take up the land of the Amorites. Now, the Amorites were on the east side of Jordan, and there were giants among them also. Now, they are to take their land, because God has given them that land, and they are to take it by battle, and they are to see that God is with them and that he will enable them to overcome the giants. This is to prepare them to enter the land. You know, the Lord does that for many of us today. He permits us to have a certain experience, maybe a difficult one, maybe a sad one, that will prepare us for life or prepare us to be helpful to others, you see. God permits that to come to pass. Now I'm going to take a giant leap myself here and go over into the third chapter because it's not my intention to go over this wilderness wandering. And you'll find more of it here than you found in Numbers, even where the log was given. But along the way, there were certain great lessons that they were to learn. And the ones that we want to point out, we will point out and we're going to get to them when we get to chapter 4. But here in chapter 3, only one thing I'd like to call your attention to. It says here, For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabath of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof, and four cubits the breadth of it after the cubit of a man. Now, here's a bed of this man. Will you notice what it says? That it was nine cubits. Now, if a cubit is 18 inches, this means this was about 13 and a half feet long. 
Now, we think today that the king-size bed is something new. Well, it's not. Here is really a king-size bed, friends. Now we come to chapter 4, and we have in this section, Moses is reviewing the journeys, the position of Moses and these people. Now, they have actually come up to the east bank of the Jordan River. They have come now near Mount Nebo, and Moses is giving his final instructions to the people. He's looking back, first of all, over the journey that they've come. Many had not made the entire journey. In fact, there were only two that were with Moses up to this point. One was Joshua, and the other was Caleb. And most of the people, their bones were bleaching out there in the desert. And now a new generation is ready to go into the land. But before they go in... Why, he reviews these journeys that they've made through the wilderness. In fact, he'll go back even farther than that. And he emphasizes in this book two great words, love and obedience. Now, maybe you never thought that love was a great theme of the Old Testament, but it is. And you find here love and obedience. God loved them. And they were to obey God because of that. Now, here in the fourth chapter, Moses is pleading with this new generation and giving them the reasons why they are to obey God. Let me lift out four that we find in this book here. You probably will find others. First of all, Israel belonged to God. Here in verse 1 he says, "...now therefore hearken, O Israel." under the statutes and under the judgments which I teach you, for to do them that ye may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers giveth you. Now, this verse does not illustrate the fact they belong to God. It rather reveals God wanted to preserve and prosper them. And that was the reason they were to obey God, and that was the only basis on which he could bless them. Now, he did state that they belonged to him. You'd have to go over to the 14th chapter of the book of Deuteronomy and pick that up there, and I'll read that. Deuteronomy 14.1, "...ye are the children of the Lord your God. Ye shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness between your eyes for the dead, etc., and etc. But you're the children of the Lord your God. They belong to God. And that was the reason they were to obey Him. They were God's children. And then we find here in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4, they were to reveal their gratitude to God because God had so marvelously blessed them. Listen to verses 7 and 8. For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them, as the Lord our God is in all things we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Now, this was the added reason here. God had so marvelously blessed them that they are to show their gratitude through obedience. 
And then there is another reason that's given in this chapter here, and it's in the 37th verse. And this is a very marvelous verse. I'm reading it now. And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. Now, the thing that God is saying here is that he loved these people. And that's the reason they were to obey him. God loved them, and they were to obey him. This is the first time in the Bible that God tells anybody that he loves them. God has demonstrated it from the very first verse in Genesis that God loves his creatures. God loves man. But he hadn't said anything about it. This is the first time that he mentions it. And he gives this as the motive for what he's done. He's delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And he's going to do greater and mightier things for them. And the basis of it, the motive for it, is that God loves them. And that is something today that every person needs to recognize. And I don't care who you are, God loves you. Now, you may not experience the love of God because sin puts up an umbrella between you and God, and you will not experience it, I can assure you. But he loves you, and he's demonstrated that love, of course, today at the cross of Christ. And you have to come there, really, to experience the love of God. Now, this is the basis for these people to obey God. First of all, God wanted to preserve and prosper them. And they are then to show their gratitude to God. And then God loves them. And then finally, over in the 14th chapter, verse 1, they belong to God. Now, these are still worthy motives for us to obey. You know, obedience to God, friends, is the first law of life. Today, man has, I think, a natural innate hatred of God. Man doesn't want to obey God. The fact of the matter is, man is very much opposed to God. Man has turned his back on God. Man resists God. All the way through the Word of God, you will find that resistance on the part of man to God, and you find that even today. I rejoice in something I heard in a little church that I preached in. A lady came up to me and said, My husband is unsaved. I was saved listening to your program. But she said, I want you to know, I've never been able to get him into church, never been able to get him to become interested, and he's resisted. But he's beginning to listen to your program, and it's the only thing he will listen to. May I say to you, if the Word of God, friends, won't break down the resistance of man, nothing else will. Only God, of course, can do that. That makes this a very wonderful section, you see. And as we said last time, if Israel had only kept God's law, what blessing there would have been to them. Now he says in verse 3, "...your eyes have seen what the Lord did because of Baal Peor. For all the men that followed Baal Peor, the Lord thy God hath destroyed them from among you." Now, even of this generation, there were many of them 
You will recall that when Balaam was called upon to curse Israel, he could not do it. fact of the matter is, he could only pronounce blessing. But he made a suggestion to the king of Moab. In other words, it's that same old cliche we have today. If you can't fight City Hall, then join it. And the thing that he said, I can't curse these people, but you can let your people go down, intermingle with them, and intermarry and introduce false worship. And I know then that God will judge them. And that's exactly what happened. Now, this was to be an example to this generation, because part of that generation had been destroyed in the judgment. And that, you'll recall, we saw in the 25th chapter of the book of Numbers. Now, will you notice in verse 4, "...but ye that did cleave unto the Lord your God are alive, every one of you this day." Now, this is the reward of obedience to God, you see. "...behold, I have taught you statutes and judgments, even as the Lord my God commanded me." that ye should do so in the land whither ye go to possess it. Now, God's preparing them to enter the promised land, and he says to them that these statutes and commandments, you're to keep them if you're to be blessed. Now, not only that, they were to be a witness to the world. And I want you to hear this verse, because you might pass over it, and it's very important. Verse 6, "...keep therefore and do them." That'll be emphasized again and again, and I'll come to that later. For this is your wisdom and your understanding. Now listen to this. In the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Now, the way Israel was to witness to the world is the opposite, the way the church is to witness to the world. We are told, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. That is given to every believer for that matter. And we should have some part in getting the word of God out to the ends of the earth today. Now, very frankly, the nation Israel was never asked to go out. They were to send an invitation and say, come, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Now, as they were faithful to God, you see what would happen? Why, the nations which shall hear all these statutes, and what will they do? Well, what did the queen of Sheba do? She came from the ends of the earth. Now, if she'll come that distance, and there were no jet planes then, they didn't have any 747s at that time, therefore... It was an arduous, hard trip that she made. But if she'd come that distance, and she was a woman, I think some of the men would come from shorter distances, and they did. That's the way Israel witnessed to the world, and that's the reason God said to them, you must obey me, that blessing may come to you. And if you don't obey me and you turn from me, then judgment will come upon you. Now, will you listen as we drop down now to verse 9, because we've already dealt with verse 7 and 8. He says here, "...only take heed to thyself, keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons." 
teach them to your grandchildren. This was the great burden that God gave to the nation Israel. It was a great teaching ministry. Now, let me pause and say again this word, because it's important. The greatest undertaking that this nation of ours has today is that of education of the young. They're probably the greatest failure of any nation is our failure today in education. Look in any city today, look in any hamlet today, look at any college today, and you can see the dismal failure of our nation in this matter of education. Now, I'm not getting ready to blame the colleges or the schools. Do you know where the problem is? The problem is back there at the home. God says to these people, I want you to teach your son, and I want you to teach your grandson. He didn't say, I want you to send him to college. I want you to teach him. The great failure today has been the failure of Papa and Mama in the home to teach, my friend. That was the great burden that God put upon this nation, upon every father and mother. And my friend, if you're going to bring one into the world, you're responsible for that one. And these divorced people today, how God is going to hold them responsible for many of these little hippies that are out because they never knew the instruction and the love and the concern and the communication from parents. My friend, that is the problem of America today. Our problem is in the home. What a responsibility there was. And then God's making it very clear to them. When this nation failed, then they failed in the home and God judged them. We'll see this again. Now, this is a rich chapter, as you can see. God says now, and I'm going to drop down to verse 12, "...and the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. Ye heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude, only ye heard a voice." That's so important to see. The Lord Jesus made it clear God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And that means these people were never to have any likeness of God whatsoever. Now the Lord Jesus became a man, but there's not a description given to him anywhere. Now you're really going to think I'm a square now if you haven't already come to that conclusion. But I do not believe in pictures of Jesus. I know that there are some very sweet and pious folk, they say to me, Oh, Dr. McGee, a picture just helps me to worship him. Well, my friend, that is strange indeed. The old Scotch commentator said, Men never, never paint a picture of Jesus until they lose the presence of him in their hearts. We need to get him in our hearts today, not in color on canvas. These are tremendous truths God's putting down here, and they're eternal truths, by the way. Now, I'm going to drop down again. Oh, this is all rich, but you must remember this is given to the nation Israel in that day, and they're great principles that carry over for us, because after all, truth is eternal. Verse 24, "...for the Lord thy God 
is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Now listen to him. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed, and the Lord shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. Now, that nation is still a witness to the world. They're scattered today over the world. Why? Because they did the thing God forbade them to do. And I know somebody's going to say, well, they're back in that land, and they're a nation now, aren't they? Yes, but aren't they in trouble? And don't try to tell me that they are there because it's fulfillment of prophecy. My friend, when God brings them into that land, they won't be having the trouble they're having today. He didn't bring them there today. I'm confident of that. That was not done through his leading, and there's no great turning to God. If there was, there'd be blessing upon these people in that land today. Now, I think these things need to be said. Even those of us who believe in prophecy just so enjoy to be able to point and say, well, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Don't point to that land and say you're seeing fulfillment of prophecy. You are not, my friend, other than the judgment is upon this nation because they've turned their back upon God and the judgment will come upon any people. They are a lesson to us, by the way. Now God goes ahead and tells what's going to come to them in the latter days. Listen at verse 30. When thou art in tribulation. And this is the first mention of the great tribulation that is ultimately coming. And all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. Now the latter days is a technical term in the Old Testament that refers to the great tribulation period. If thou turn to the Lord thy God and shall be obedient unto his voice. That was the condition. Now notice this. Is this because God is a great bully and that he's harsh? Now listen, for the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He'll not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto thee. God's merciful. And the reason that they haven't been consumed is because God is merciful. And friends, that's the reason that you and I haven't been. And the reason that if you are saved, you're not saved because you're a nice, sweet little Sunday school boy or girl. You're saved because of the mercy of God, my friend. He's merciful. And that's the reason he's preserved this people. Verse 34, Or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes." Now, that was the eyes of their fathers. 
And God does not want them to forget that. God has been gracious to them, and he wants them to remember this. And he did it, as we've already seen in verse 37, "...and because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt." God did it because he loved them. That is the explanation. There was no good in them, but there was good in God today. God saves us. He loves us. But he doesn't save us by love, of course. He saves us by grace. Because, you see, he just can't open the back door of heaven and slip us in. A sacrifice for our sins had to be made, and Christ died that you and I might have a pardon. Therefore, God so loved the world, not that he saved the world, but that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, doesn't make any difference who it is, believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now he says in verse 44, "...and this is the law which Moses set before the children of Israel. These are the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which Moses spake unto the children of Israel after they came forth out of Egypt." 